I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. All right. Awesome. So, and I want to make sure I get this right because I'm really good at butchering people's names. Is it Fuhrerbacher? Yeah. That sounds good. Close? Yes, that's perfect. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Erica Fuhrerbacher. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. And um, so you're with Virginia Tech and you are currently overseeing their Applied Animal Behavior and Welfare Program, the online master's course. Right. Um, and you've got lots of fun letters behind your name. You've got certified applied animal behaviorist, board certified behavior analyst, and you are certified dog trainer through CCPDT, right. knowledge is assessed, yes, correct? Yes, you got it. Okay. All right. So um, first, I kind of want to talk a little bit about that process because we have all these different divisions of um, dog trainers and behavior professionals. And so I kind of want to ask you a little bit about the path that you took in terms of um, getting your CAAB and becoming board certified and what kind of led you down that path um, to begin with. Yeah, so I um, probably like a lot of us just was an animal child <laughs> uh, growing up and had all the animals my parents would let me have, which was a lot. They were incredibly generous. We had goats and sheep and chickens and dogs and horses. And so uh, it was a ton of fun. Um, but coming up at, in that era, if I said I wanted to work with companion animals, it was like, well, you're going to go to vet school. And I thought, no, I'm not going to go to vet school. Uh, but I didn't know what else. So I got a degree in biology and, and did a lot of animal behavior research with insects as an undergrad. Um, and actually went to grad. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did uh, honeybee research at Arizona State University, uh, which was a lot of fun. And I still love our pollinators because of that. Yeah, that's um, great. And I uh, ended up at UC Berkeley for a few years, uh, just continuing that. But I never really stopped to think about like what animals and what about behavior I'm really passionate about. And at the same time, I gifted myself a working line German Shepherd. And uh <laughs> And so I was trying to keep up with her and I knew I wanted to take her into agility and we did get into competitive agility. Um, and I just fell in love with dog training and I thought it was so fun and it was so fun to connect with my animal. Uh, and I learned about clicker training through our agility instructor, Catherine Horn, and, and it just changed my relationship with my dog. Um, and it was really fabulous. And I realized that I would go home and read about dog training and, and not about insect flight. Uh so I uh, took a job at Peninsula Humane Society uh, and SPCA in San Mateo, California, in their behavior department, and really got my feet wet uh, there in their uh, sheltering world and animal behavior. And at that point, um, I was also teaching some classes. Uh, and so I, I sat for my CPDT and got that. Um, but I still, you know, I had gone to grad school for a few years, didn't finish my degree there, but really loved that inquiry. And the more I got into the dog training world, it just seemed like there was so much we didn't know that we were basing so much of our research on uh, rats and pigeons. And certainly there's a lot of continuity there, but I really wanted to help our field improve um, and, and, you know, address our own issues in an applied sense. So I went back to school at North Texas uh, in behavior analysis um, and got my master's and then worked at uh, uh, with Clive Wynn at University of Florida, getting my PhD. And so along the way, uh, I picked up all the classes that were necessary for the cab um, and had the experience. And so wanted to wanted to go for that certification as well. 
That's fantastic. And I think, um, so you got your doctorate in psychology and human psychology. Right. And, yes. you know, that's one of the things that we, we kind of all laugh about in this field is that you get into dog training or behavior um, because you love the dogs and you want to work with the dogs. And, and a lot of us are, you know, introverted and not always so great with the people. But <laughs> in order to succeed, like you have to have kind of the human side of things too. And I can see where that would be a huge benefit to have, you know, a psychology background in terms of how to work with people so that they can work with their own dogs. You know, it's one thing for us to work with them, but to teach the people in a way that they can understand. And you have all these different types of personalities and, you know, no one pet parent is the same. So um, I, I imagine that comes in handy a lot. Yeah, it's, you know, it, you're right. It's it's just like dog training where you have to adjust to your learner and the things that they're that's going to resonate with them. I think human training is harder <laughs> when we're working with the owners largely because we don't control all of their reinforcers. And so um, we just have a lot less control over uh, them following our instructions um, or finding what we want them to find valuable. Whereas with dogs, you know, we can control things a little bit more. We have access to their toys and attention and food and all the other things that are valuable to them. But with their owners, it, it can be a little bit trickier for sure. Yeah, finding what their reinforcers are for sure. Yeah. Is this one, do I need to stroke the ego a little bit here? Do we need words of affirmation? Do I need to feed you too? Like what do we need to do? Right. And then I, I know so many folks, right. We get into the home thinking we're there for a dog training consult and then it becomes a family issue. Um, and there's family dynamics and, you know, one person might find the training valuable and another person doesn't. Um, and so you're trying to you've got different people with different reinforcers and, and they're not agreeing and, and, you know, we're not trained in, in uh, family counseling. So. Right. Yeah. But given that you are, how do you kind of handle that situation? If you're working <laughs> with people and you're like, okay, so by the way, I do have a psychology degree too. So here's what we're going to do. <laughs> well, I, uh, while I work, I do have my BCBA for board certified behavior analyst. Uh, I, I'm not a counselor and I don't have that background. All of my work was in um, behavior analysis. So, much more on the training and learning side uh, rather than than family counseling. So I try and draw from that of you know trying to understand how to set up the environment appropriately, how to how to arrange the antecedents so that I get the behavior I want. Trying to identify those reinforcers uh, for the for the owners, and um, you know sometimes you have to kind of scroll through different reinforcers until it, until you see them kind of light up, and then you're like, okay, this Boom. is. <laughs> what is matters to them. And this is the, what I'm going to have to deliver to, to try and maintain their behavior towards their dog. Yeah, that it can be quite complicated, I imagine. Um, so tell me a little bit about the research that you're working on. I've seen some of your publications that have come out and it's really some fun stuff. And it sounds like, you know, based on the educational path that you took, you were, you know, hoping to kind of get into research because you weren't really satisfied with what was out there necessarily and want to be a part of that kind of progress in, in animal sciences. So um, what have you been working on and what's really kind of striking your, your research your research passion cord lately? Yeah, um, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I love creating knowledge and, and identifying, you know, what's working for our practitioners and what's not. And oftentimes I think our practitioners are ahead of the research. They're doing great things, but it would be wonderful to put some data behind that. Um, and so that's where I think I, I can help out um, is really appreciating what practitioners do and then trying to assess it and figure out, you know, how does this work? Why is it working? How can we improve it? So my interests largely are really around the human dog relationship. So I've done a lot of, a lot of studies looking at 
what interactions dogs prefer from us, um, trying to understand how we can be better humans for our dogs. Uh, and of course, because I love dog training, um, a number of my papers have looked at identifying different reinforcers for dogs, um, which ones are most valuable and in which, which context. So looking at food and different magnitudes of food, social interaction. Uh, we just had a paper come out looking at um, uh, social interaction as a reinforcer for dogs, as well as uh, access to the owner. So that's historically what I've done a lot of that and shelter dog welfare and looking at interventions to improve their lives. Um, so those are still kind of my two two main drives of shelter dog welfare and looking at how we can improve our learning and, and training, and especially around uh, improving human dog interactions. Um, in terms of bigger projects, we, we have a couple. Uh, we have a grant with Texas Tech University um, looking at um, dogs detecting the invasive insect, the spotted lanternfly. Uh, Texas Tech with Dr. Nathan Hall has been doing a lot of the lab work looking at the dog's limits of detection. And our project, our side of the project is now just ticking up. We're going to be recruiting um, uh, companion dogs, uh, so not uh, professional working dogs but your pet dogs that might participate in like NACSW and their owners to try and become citizen science teams um, detecting spotted lanternfly. So it's one of the big projects. Um, and then uh, we have our online master's program and uh, a number of students are, are doing some excellent data collection. And so we have a ton of cool projects going on there. Um, Jim McGurk and Adrian Carson are looking at how, how well dogs retain a novel behavior behavior they've been trained in the shelter once they're in, in the adopted home, which is going to speak to how and when we train our dogs that are in shelters. Um, Randa Hitchcock just de defended, and she was looking at factors associated with behavioral euthanasia. Um, uh, Skylar Howard is just about to defend, and she's been looking at how um, adding a scent to a toy impacts dogs' interaction with it for an enrichment item. So we have lots of fun, lots of fun projects there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so much going on. And I noticed too, um, one of the things that I love is the Facebook page that I visited um, for the program, for the master's program for Virginia Tech. There's a lot of um, support and calls to action for people to get involved with companion animals to help be a part of the research as well. So anybody that's on that Facebook page, I mean, I think it's great to kind of go through that and see what studies are open and, you know, who's conducting what research in order to kind of jump on board and be a part of that to kind of help with that. So I was really glad to see that. I'm like, okay, this is where you can collect a lot of people and get a lot of people onboarded to participate, you know? It is. It's it's really fun. And we find that um, people and their dogs, uh, they are fascinated by their dogs. And when you say, I want to study your dog, they're really keen on it. Yeah. Uh, we, we usually don't have any problems recruiting folks that want to learn more about their dogs with us. And, and so it's... It's really, yeah, it's really great. And, and thank you for mentioning that. We have a, a few studies. I think Rachel Lane has a survey open looking at uh, puppy behavior. So um, there are always ways to to get involved. Yeah. And I thought um, it was really interesting to highlight the, the recent paper that um, you guys released in terms of social interactions, because it's interesting. There's these big back and forth battles with dog trainers about using reinforcers and, oh, you know, everybody's using food and they're bribing their dogs and, you know, oh, I'm only going to use play and I'm only going to use this. And sometimes the individual dog gets lost in translation of what trainers are trying to 
do with a dog instead of looking at, okay, what is this animal actually reinforced by? And um, so I love that that paper in particular pointed out social interactions, you know, access to, you know, other animals or people or that kind of thing to where that can be a reinforcer. Anything in the environment can be a reinforcer to go smell the bush over there or to say hi to my friend across the fence. And um, so I was really excited to see that. And I'm definitely going to push that out and share that because I feel people get so hung up on the reinforcer that they think is going to be most effective across the board instead of saying, this dog likes social interaction. This dog does not. This dog likes play. This dog likes food. And you know what? Today I might use a combination of five different types of reinforcers. So I was, I was definitely excited to see that one come out. Yeah, I think that's such a, a good observation that sometimes we get uh, into our this is how I do things kind of recipe book. And instead of maintaining that flexibility of saying, I use, you know, positive reinforcement, and it's my learner is going to tell me <clears throat> what's valuable to them. And I need to be able to engage and play, uh, deliver social interactions that they want or deliver food. Or like you said, all those environmental reinforcers, like, can I let you sniff um, contingent on you not pulling me there? Um, right. And they're just so many reinforcers that that we can utilize that I think we we don't often recognize that. And so having that flexibility and always thinking about, um, you know, what can I use in my environment uh, to reinforce my dog, especially if you get kind of caught flat handed or flat footed with with uh, running out of treats or something, you, ne you need to have some other alternatives um, to be able to maintain the, the good behavior. Yeah, I have, a, I have a case right now that I think is a good reminder. Um... I have a German shepherd that um, has to take digestive enzymes with everything that, that he eats. He's got EPI, so you can't give him treats, and we get hyperarousal when we're around tug. And so it's one of those things where you might not be able to use what your typical go-to is, and you've got to be really creative. Otherwise, you can end up with a, a, a you know um, client's dog or, or that is um, uh, ill or off because of you know your typical go-to method. So. It's fun right. to have an entire bag of tricks, so to speak, in your in your toolbox to to work with animals. Um, so, in terms of um, getting your cab or looking into um, really applied animal behavior work in general, in terms of um, from an academic perspective, if you've got behavior consultants, you've got dog trainers that are a little bit more interested in the applied animal side of things or applied ethology, what is kind of the benefit in, in going through that master's program? So you've got your bachelor's degree on board, you're interested in doing this. It's online. I mean, I think that's one of the benefits mm -hmm. right there is that you don't have to go into the classroom, um, but it's, you're taking on debt, you know, you've got extra schooling and extra work. So um, I really want to hear from your perspective because you've been through it, what the benefit is in terms of um, how it can affect your practice as a behavior consultant or a dog trainer to to go through it, to, to work for that. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the online masters that we've devised and designed is really built for behavior professionals, like you said, that have their full-time lives where they are. They can't pick up and, and move for two years to a location. And and so we've made it all online. Um, it's asynchronous, uh, although we add in syn optional synchronous um, alternatives. Uh, so we we do, you know, online Zooms together and anybody that can join does. And we record it for those that can't uh, to try and build some community. Uh, but it is really designed for behavior professionals that want to uh, really expand their knowledge of, of animal behavior and hopefully have a, a more circumspect view of what they're doing and how to approach behavior cases that, that they're encountering. Um, so I think, you know, historically, 
these programs haven't existed. And so folks have to kind of piecemeal together their knowledge, right? They're going to a seminar here and getting an hour's worth, a seminar over there for, you know, uh, an hour's worth and trying to cobble this together into a cohesive program for themselves. Um, and and those seminars can be fabulous or they could, you know, have some misinformation in them depending on the credentials of the person giving it. But it's also not cohesive, right? You're getting this person person's perspective. Uh, and then you might hear something completely opposite because we're using different terms in another person's seminar. And so we really wanted to give that scientific backing to folks that wanted it, um, where we use scientific language throughout. Uh, we're drawing connections to each other's classes. Um, and I, I have, am very um, thrilled to have brought in some, some of my favorite people like Dr. Jessica Heckman teaches for us, uh, Dr. Lisa Gunter teaches for us, um, Dr. Mindy Waite, Dr. Christina Spalding. Uh, I roped in Dr. Megan Heron this year. And so I, we just have these folks that I think are really fabulous practitioners, really knowledgeable. And they all have the same goal in mind of, of helping behavior practitioners understand their system better and understand the complexities of it and where they can intervene. Um, and so in our program, folks get, like you said, the ethology backing, the kind of biological animal behavior. They're also getting really strong um, psychology and learning principles. And then we also offer courses um, from Mindy Waite and Christina Spalding in consulting, or Megan Heron does one on adjunctive approaches. So talking about nutrition and behavioral pharmacology and how that can impact things. So what I hope is that our, our students come out really understanding the, the multifaceted nature of behavior um, and also knowing that there are many points of intervention for them. That yes, you might focus on um, changing consequences or antecedents, but should we be looking at the dog's nutrition as well? Um, when should you talk to a veterinary behaviorist about behavioral pharmacology? Um, what do we know about the stress response that this dog is, is going and how is that impacting how successful our training is? So that's what I, I really hope for our practitioners is, is they come out with a cohesive view from multiple layers of analysis of behavior. I so, find that so helpful. Um, my, my whole behavior consulting business is whole dog behavior and wellness because I try to take it from that approach exactly where we're looking at nutrition and the gut microbiome and the medical history and the age and the breed and just everything that you can think of about this animal in particular as an individual and putting that together so that we have lots of different tools in the toolbox. Some things might make a very tiny impact and some things might make a large impact, but collectively now we're making the best difference that we can make in, in this animal's life basically. And, and therefore their pet parents too. So I like that kind of whole, as I would say, whole dog approach to where, you know, we're looking at everything. So that's kind of, you know, something of benefit there is that you're getting this, you know, 360 view all in one place and that those classes are interconnected and you're working together to kind of help pull all of that, all of that together in one place. So that's great. Right. It is. Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, there, there are, um, uh, well, I'll just say a few things. Uh, um, you can you don't have to enroll in our full program you can take up to four classes without being in our program um, so you can always kind of taste test it see if it's for you or maybe there's just one class that you're like i want that class um, that, that you could come in and take without you know going through the full master's program and our master's it's technically non-thesis but um, we do project and report which i've essentially said it's going to be a thesis um, because that will 
qualify our students for CAB. Uh, and as I mentioned before, I really want to create knowledge for our field. And so uh, our students go into it knowing they're going to have an extensive research project that we hope will be publishable at the end so that we can give back to our community and say, we've got more more knowledge about the things that you are worried about or wondering about or are doing and, and how, how they really work. Um, certainly, like you said, uh, it is a self-funded program. And so folks have to kind of take that into account. Um, I would say, you know, generally speaking, um, behavior folks are just underappreciated <laughs> financially. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, I recognize that that's, that's a challenge of, you know, is this going to elevate your income enough to counter that? I can't say for sure now. I'm hoping that as we get more and more folks out there with better and better credentials, that we elevate the field. And um, and this kind of gets into your licensure um, mentioned previously is hoping that kind of we can elevate that field um, and elevate owners' expectations of what their consultants should be doing, that they should be science-based and ethical and humane. Um, and and hopefully little by little, folks that use um, harmful techniques uh, um, <laughs> get pushed to the side a little bit uh, and, are, and are not as, as prevalent. And I'm hoping that folks realize how complex this is. I mean, it, it's no different than child psychology, right? We Behavior is complex. Um, with humans, we certainly have verbal behavior, um, but it, I think it's sort of sad that folks are willing to let folks that have very little training and use harmful methods work with their animals. You wouldn't, hopefully wouldn't let them do that with your kids. So like I said, I, I'm hoping that this sort of elevates the field and hopefully some financial appreciation comes along with that. Yes, we definitely need to work towards the financial appreciation. People do not go into behavior work, just like vet med, because they're in it for the money. Right. <laughs> Anytime I hear that you just want mon you just want more money, I'm like, oh, if you had any idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. sure. Right. Well, and I want to um, look at this for a moment in terms of like elevating the field and, um, you know, looking at some of the proposed legislation that's coming up and credentialing, because this is a big argument right now. And I think a lot of trainers are feeling threatened because um, language is being introduced. Um, there's a bill that's been presented in Illinois right now that's going to define what dog trainer means. They're looking at setting up a board and that board is going to determine who can and cannot use the term uh, dog trainer because you have to be credentialed under a program, which, you know, for me makes sense. You know, if you're going to call yourself something, what is your educational background? Do you have the hands-on experience and what does that look like? Because I think mm -hmm. there's unfortunately a lot of ignorance in terms of pet parents, you know, and that's not a bad thing on them. They just don't know. How do you know if right. the person that calls themselves the professional and is flashy and has lots of marketing and maybe bought a lot of likes and subscribes, but doesn't really have it yet. Yeah. Um, how do you know you're getting that the fake it till you make it essentially, or, um, or the person who has years and years of experience is hands-on, is credentialed. So I think there's a lot of um, education for pet parents in particular to help them understand the differences of what you're getting and what you're not. And some of that regulation might you know, be that filter that could be in place to help. And I know there's a lot of argument out there about um, you know, if regulation is in place, then, you know, they're going to ban certain tools and, you know, you're going to tell me how I can and can't train. And um, at least with the what's being proposed in Illinois right now, it's there is there's not a ban. Uh, there, we're looking at Lima, you know, um, 
in terms of practices and a joint standard of practice, which multiple organizations are on board with. So your certifying organizations, CCPDT, APDT, IAADC, and every other acronym we can think of, of course, right? Um, <laughs> but they're on board and they're all coming together to say, yes, we believe in these practices. And this is what we believe is going to elevate the animal welfare field in terms of behavior and training. And, um, you know, I think there's a big argument out there because of that regulation. <clears throat> so what are your thoughts, too, on, on saying, okay... If we're going to call ourselves dog trainer or behavior consultant, or my favorite in the U.S., behaviorist, because U.K. and U.S. are different with that terminology, um, right. what are your thoughts on some of this proposed legislation that's out there with saying, okay, we're going to have a board, we're going to have a certifying body, and you have to be under one of these credentialing programs to call yourself this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think our field has been so historically unregulated, um, and I think the the dogs and the owners that care for them um, suffer for it. I, I agree with you. The owners are are trying to do the best thing. When I, I when I see somebody taking their dog to a trainer that I know is is not going to help that dog, I know the owner wanted to try and help, right? They're they're putting money into this. And it's so unfortunate that they ended up with somebody that is not going to help their dog or potentially could harm their dog. <laughs> and I feel really awful for them. Um, and so it, it is really hard. And so I'm, I am on the side that I think we do need governance. Um, we need some, um, some oversight to make sure that folks who say they're doing this actually, like you said, have the scientific understanding of behavior, of training, um, know how to do it humanely, know how to, um, you know, use positive reinforcement effectively and, uh, and then see if, if, there are tools that they need to add on, um, but that, but it's not their go-to tool right, right from the start. Um, so I, I think this is essential for our field to move forward. I do think we have to be careful in how it's, how it's done. That's, that's where I think it'll come down to is, is that um, those licensure um, statements need to be really carefully defined so that we are producing and licensing what we value. Um, and, and so I, I think that will help our field. Um, it, it is really challenging. And I think as a lot of practitioners that are really fabulous, like you said, it, it can be hard to compete with folks that are flashy, but uh, and use wording that is deceitful um, that, you know, they will say, they will put in these, these words that they know the owner is looking for. But then when you actually look at their practice, it doesn't line up with what they're saying. And it's not the owner's fault, right? They were looking for this person that used reinforcement, positive reinforcement-based training. And then you have them, you know, putting shot collars on or prong collars. Um, and and so, it, it, you know, I think that's unfair to the owner who was trying to do the right thing. Um, so I, I think this is where we have to move. I know it is concerning on how it's how it's executed, but this happens in all professional fields, right? We have medical boards. We have um, uh, boards for behavior analysts. We have boards for clinical psychologists because we can't just have folks hanging their shingle and saying, I'm a dog trainer without, without anything to um, back it up. Yeah, no, I agree with that for sure. And, and other countries are already doing that. They already have it implemented and, you know, we're, typically slow to move on different things that other countries are advanced at. I hate to say that, but it's true. But I mean, it Germany, is. for example, um, 
you know, not that I support a full-out ban because I'm, I'm probably in the minority here, but I'm very much um, of the camp that, um, m- you know, methodology matters. And so I'm not necessarily for like, oh, we need to ban this and we need to ban that. Um, it's more about kind of the, the human practice, the human to dog practice and what you're doing for that dog in front of you. Whereas in like Germany, they have a ban on e-collars and on prong collars because those things could potentially be used abusively or in, in a way that is going to... Um, cause more harm than good. And it's tough because, you know, you want people to be free to do the things that they want to do. You know, we are the land of the free and we make our own decisions and we build our own, you know, legacy. But at the same time, it's tough because we have so many people that do misuse and mistreat animals and don't even, I think, don't even realize that they are because of, you know, what they grew up with or what they're used to, or, you know, the results that they're seeing that they think can carry on every single, to every single case. You know, if you've got somebody working in obedience with high arousal, high drive dogs, and you're using e-collars for off-leash and they're handling it just fine, and then you try to use an e-collar the same way that you've been using that in obedience with a dog that has, you know, fear, uh, fear-related responses and, you know, situational environmental anxiety, now you've got a big problem on your hands. And it's like, well, it just didn't work for that dog. So in, on one hand, you know, removing certain tools takes out that, filters out that, um, pool or that population of people that can misuse it or don't understand what they're doing or, um, but at the same time, it's like, yes, but is it really the, the e-collar or the prong collar that's causing the problem? Is it the methodology that's causing the problem or is it the tool? You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, I feel like it's the same conversation of, is it the, the pit bull type dog that is the problem or is it a lack of responsible ownership, which is why our, you know, breed bans are being repealed all across the nation because surprise, it was a band-aid fix and it didn't work. Um, so, I mean, what, do, what are your thoughts on that? Are you think, do you think like kind of controlling the tools that are available is the way to control methodology? Or do you think it's more of, you know, guys, let's be responsible and let's increase our education and let's look at what science and research is out there so that we don't have to necessarily ban things, but we can move forward collectively based on methodology. What's your, your kind of take on that? Yeah, so I, I think you bring up a good point of, you know, is it the tool? Is it how it's used? And that's where, you know, we really need more research. Um, we really don't have that. Um, there have been, you know, doing studies on e-collars and prong collars are hard to do because, you know, to me, it's unethical to put that tool on a dog that wasn't going to receive it anyway um, and and subject them to that, especially knowing the potential behavioral fallout. And so those studies are, are hard to conduct um, in a controlled setting. And so we're, you know, trying to, research has been trying to piece together evidence for how do these things work. Um, I think we do know from a lot of uh, basic research, the behavioral fallout of aversive methods, uh, regardless of how they're used. Um, you know, most of those historically have been used with like shock, um, And it certainly, you know, it would certainly behoove us to study other types of punishers, things that maybe aren't as severe as shock. How does that affect the animal's um, uh, behavior so that we can make educated decisions on on how to go about this? Um, I am certainly for not giving um, Joe Public access to these tools. Uh, You know, it bothers me when I walk into a pet store and see shock collars readily available and prong collars readily available to folks that aren't going to use it appropriately, aren't going to understand the importance of timing or contingency or anything like that. Um, or the fallout so, that happens when it's not used correctly. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And and we see so many folks who's who, again, tried to do the right thing by their dog and sent them to a trainer that then used one of those tools. And now the dog is worse. Like you said, these dogs that had fear and anxiety to begin with, and this just exacerbated it. And they were fearful before and now they're, you know, outright aggressive or dangerous. Um, and so I'm certainly for not allowing access to that. It, if we don't want to go a full ban right now, um, which, you know, I, I could understand when, especially as we transition that, you know, there could be a stepwise process and see how it goes. I'm all about database decisions um, is ensuring that people have proper training and proper skills and proper understanding that they have to maybe get licensed to use those tools. Um, and, and uh, I mean, I, I don't use those tools. I don't recommend them. Um, uh, I've never, never felt the need to uh, use one of those tools on a dog. Um, and so, you know, if we are not for an outright ban and, and, and certainly I think with if we ban those, people are horrible sometimes, right? They find new ways yeah. to to get done what they want to get done. Um, and so I think part of this comes back to education of we need to start really building better skills and better understanding of behavior um, so that when faced with that choice, and even if the prong collar is banned, that they don't say, well, I could do it this other way. Um, that's not technically a prong collar, but, you know, has the same, same behavioral effect. Um, but certainly, you know, limiting that to certain people that have certain skills and that have to then demonstrate that they don't use that tool as a, as a the go-to tool. Um, this is one thing that I really like about um, the behavior analyst ethics code is that you have to essentially exhaust your positive reinforcement toolbox before you could ever think about stepping up on that kind of Lima Lima chart. And oftentimes you have to get approval by a larger body to do that. You can't just say, well, now I'm going to do this because I tried everything. Other people have to weigh in and say, no, you ought to try this first. Um, and right now, you know, it's kind of a, a free for all um, in the in the dog training world of what tools you want to use and when and how. Um, so I think there's a lot more oversight that could be given. Like I said, if we don't want to go in a outright ban and, um, I think there are lots of steps that we could put in place that would at least restrict those tools to folks that have more training and at the same time require them to show that that, that is not their initial go-to option, that they explore all these other options first. That also has to come with making sure those folks have those skills to use those positive reinforcement strategies effectively. I, I think that's the other thing is, as you mentioned, if, if somebody's been using a prong collar all their life, um, and then you say, well, now you have to use positive reinforcement. I, I know when I'm starting out, right, with that, my my timing was off. My um, mechanical skills were off. Um, and so they might say, well, positive reinforcement doesn't work for them because they haven't learned those skills. And so we need to make sure that they are as skilled in these other strategies as they are in their old strategy and I think that will help help move folks away from those more aversive methods. Well, it is. It's it's competency based. It really is. I think that it's um, it's not as easy. It requires more skill to really think about what the dog in front of you is responding to and accepting that feedback and utilizing that feedback in a way that you can 
shape the behaviors that you're looking for with reinforcement. You know, I think that that takes a, a shift, a mind shift. Um, you know, I always think about when low stress handling came into practice with um, the veterinary world. You know, I was working as a veterinary nurse and I worked primarily emergency and emergency handling is extremely different from companion animal handling. You know, you've got to get in there. You're going to restrain them. You're going to get it done. You're, you know, boom, boom, boom. We're not here to make the animal feel comfortable. We're here to, you know, save their life. So when um, in working in private practice, when low stress handling came on board, it was quite a shift. It was it was almost like. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my face torn off because I can't handle these animals without using this restraint, without using some of these, these forceful techniques. So even for me, who I want to do best by the animal, I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to have a Rottweiler take my face off or a cat is going to shred me to pieces or, and that's not the case. It's just that you have to learn a different skill set to be able to implement it, to be able to do it. It is possible. And I think sometimes that fear of, oh no, this, I'm going to get hurt, you know, because you're going to get hurt if you try it right off the bat without having any knowledge behind you or having mentorship or having the education. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you can't just be like, boom, I'm going to change everything that I do, you know, the next day. It takes some onboarding. Um, but, you know, to bring it to your point about having a body that says, yes, this is a good idea or no, it's not. I kind of like that. So IABC does that. Um, I think it was last year or maybe the year before. The ethics committee put into play, um, we're not banning tools, we're not banning the use of tools. However, if you want to use a tool that is typically used in a punishing fashion uh, or is considered aversive because the methods behind it is, is typically aversive, mm -hmm. then we want you to pitch it to our ethics committee. And if we think that you're being ethical in your approach, all right, then we'll approve that. If we think that you're being unethical in your approach, and you want to do that and you move forward with doing that, we'll pull your credentials. Like we all abide by, um, you know, these, these kind of guidelines in terms of what we've laid out for animal welfare. And if we think that you're, you know, if you've pitched us that you're going to do this in a way that we believe as a body, as an entire committee is, is ethical, then, then we'll allow it, but you've got to run it through the team first. And I think having more heads together about what other alternatives are there? Are there all other alternatives is, is really helpful and important in improving someone else's practice because maybe they are brand new. They just got credentialed and they have no idea what else to do. But on the flip side, I want to throw this thought at you. I want to pitch this to you because I, I hear all this language about, you know, tools being, especially with Lima, like the, the, the last thing to do, you know, for, if, if we're looking at, um, you know, implementing a tool, we've done all these other things and now we're going to implement the tool. And in my practice, just from my own personal experience, if I'm, if I'm exasperated in a case to where I've tried all these different things and, and now I have to turn to something else, the last thing I'm going to turn to is an aversive tool. That tells me I need someone else. I need help on board. Is it a vet behaviorist? Is it another behavior consultant? Is it a cab? Is it somebody else that can jump in and say, what haven't you tried? Or I've done this. Maybe you should try this. Or, hey, I'll take that case for you because, you know, you're struggling with it. The last thing I'm going to do is go to a tool as a last ditch effort. If I'm ever going to go to a tool, which I don't really use them in my practice either. If I'm going to go to a tool, I'm going to go to like an e-collar and I'm going to use that in a way that does not involve punishment. I wouldn't use an e-collar in a way that involved punishment. And so I think that's where I get hung up a lot is that, you know, in working with um, foster dogs and rescue dogs for so long, when I did used to use e-collar, I didn't um, pair it with punishment. There was no aversive because I would pair it with my deaf dogs in particular. 
um, either a tap or a vibration, just depending on how they responded. Some dogs are like terrified of the vibration. So Mm -hmm. even trying to condition them to that, it's no go. I don't want them uncomfortable. But um, I feel like if you're going to use a tool, again, my opinion, like that would be something that you start with because the dog has the confidence and you can build an association. And if you can't, that's out the door. As opposed to um, all of this conversation that I hear about like, oh, I've tried everything else that's a last ditch effort. To me, the last ditch effort is bringing somebody else on board, talking to somebody else that might have a different strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is um, absolutely correct. Um, you know, there's so much collective knowledge out there and it's hard for one person to have contacted everything. This is why, um, you know, when you go to a doctor, you might have a general practitioner. And then when you have this specific behavioral issue or medical issue, you get sent to a specialist because they see that case, right? They see that. And so they understand the whole spectrum where, where's your general practitioner isn't going to see that. Or, um, you know, if you have something that has been insolvable by all of your medical team, you go to maybe a teaching hospital that gets all these weird cases because you need to find that doctor that saw that one weird thing. Uh, And you read stories about this all the time, right? Of this person that's had this like years long condition that, that nobody's been able to fix. And then they happen to be referred to the right doctor who saw somebody like that before or heard of another case. They know how to treat you. And so I agree. I, I think um, turning to our community, you know, we sometimes feel kind of like a solitary practice, right? We're this one person running our business. Um, and maybe there's even maybe some competition of, of you know, for resources and clients. Uh, but I think really recognizing that our community is and should be helpful, that you can turn to folks and get support, you're going to become a better trainer, right? I'm, I'm still learning all the time. Um, and I love listening to practitioners who are honing their skills and refining what we do. Um, and so I agree. I mean, I think turning to the larger community at that point saying, I'm stumped. Um, what other things can we try? And sometimes it's just like that one little tweak, right? Of like, oh, I just need to s- switch that, uh, switch how the owner's doing this, or try this new environmental approach or um, bringing some different meds on board um, can really change the life for that animal and and the human. And also, um, you know, being able to make good decisions about behavioral euthanasia and identifying when that is the best option for the dog and the owner um, and not, you know, I, I think behavior is particularly hard because there does always seem to be this, well, let's try one more thing. Maybe if you just try it longer and harder. And, and at some point, um, you know, the, the dog and the owner are, are not thriving, um, might be a danger to each other, might be a danger to society. And, and so we have to have those tough com- conversations too. Yeah, that reminds me. So um, you were mentioning Miranda just defended for, um, and her topic was behavior euthanasia. Is that recorded? Is that available for people to listen? Um, her, her, um, her thesis has should be out on ProQuest. So if you're on to go on to Google Scholar and search on Miranda Hitchcock, um, her work will come up. Um, I know she's working on getting that published as well. So hopefully there'll be some out in peer-reviewed journals soon too. Excellent. I think that's so helpful. It's such a difficult conversation and you're right. If you're like, we'll just try this one more thing. We'll just do this one more thing. And it's like, okay, you know, where's that straw? But it's such a difficult conversation for pet parents, especially when they've been trying so hard and they love their animals so much. And they feel like if I had been better, if I had just, and it's like, sometimes there is not 
that if I had, there's nothing you can do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I I think having, you know, those conversations, you know, um, I'm certainly against like free specific legislation. I think, like you said, that's, (laughs) it's a useless patch. Um, I also don't like the approach of it's all in how you raise them uh, because I think that puts um, uh, it isn't, we know how much genetics and epigenetics affect behavior um, and early, you know, experiences in the womb, things that the owner's going to have no control over. Um, And so I think that adds to the guilt of like, like you said, if I had just done this differently, um, certainly you can create dangerous dogs. um, Mm -hmm. But, but that is not to say that every dog that's out there that's engaging in dangerous behavior was, you know, human caused in the sense of, um, you know, training um, some way. Um, And so I think recognizing, like you said, that there are some dogs that have unfortunately been damaged somewhere along the way, um, you know, the confluence of genetics and environment. Um, and there's, you know, there's no guilt to be, to be, you know, dispensed anywhere. Um, so. Yeah. I think, um, pet parents take a lot of comfort in that because there are some people that I work with that, you know, I do have a history on their puppyhood and what they were, or were not exposed to, you know, nine weeks and under. And, you know, sometimes you just have to say, listen, we're going to do everything that we can, but you need to understand that some of this is permanent. So while we can make things better, are we going to get it to the point to where it's what your expectations are? You know, we're not going to cure this because there are things that we simply cannot change. You know, if your puppy was attacked during a critical fear period, okay, unfortunately, you know, we're looking at some permanent damage. What can we do to mitigate it, make the dog feel better, lower the stress? But yeah, I think even just being able to explain that to people helps them kind of come to terms and look at the dog they have in front of them, not the dog that they've always wanted kind of thing, you know? So next time when you get a dog or a puppy, then we can talk about what to look for and what to avoid. But for now, this is what's in front of you. And I think that kind of sometimes will, will actually bridge the relationship a little bit better because now they feel like they have an understanding and maybe a little bit less guilt of, well, if I had socialized them more, or if I take them to the dog park more, no, you know, I'm yeah. glad you didn't take them to the dog park more. Now we're good. <laughs> you know? So, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that it is hard for folks to readjust their expectations, but like you said, I think once they get there and say, well, how do I help this dog? Maybe this is not my, farmer's market dog, right? That can go out in public spaces with me all the time. Um, and I had to do that with our, our old Malinois who I adopted for agility and she's just way too environmentally sensitive for competitive agility. So it's like, what, what can we find to do together that makes her feel safe? And I have fun with as well. So we do a lot more hiking. Um, and, and so like you said, um, learning how to help the dog, recognizing that, that some of these things are going to be long-term and, and you can mitigate it, but your dog's always going to have this like tinge of that, right? You're going to have to be on the lookout for people like for us, people directly approaching your dog because she's not going to handle that well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that becomes the role of the the owner to be the advocate for the, for the dog they have. Yeah. And I think that's so important so that they can see their dog for who their dog is, you know, what their personality mm-hmm. really looks like and become that, that bubble for them and outside environments and, yeah, I think that's important. So. Yeah, and I think that goes back to our initial conversation about like identifying the learner's reinforcers, right? Like you might like hiking, but if your dog gets freaked out about it or you like going out to farmers markets and concerts and want to take your dog and your dog doesn't enjoy that, 
learning how to understand what's valuable to your dog and saying, okay, well, you're not going to come to the farmer's market with me. We'll find another activity later on um, that we could do together um, and, and recognizing them as an individual and figuring out what matters to them in their life. I think hopefully, hopefully enhances both, both parties' lives. Yeah. And not looking at the, well, I can't go to the farmer's market and I can't take my dog to the brewery. What can I do with my dog? What activities can I involve my dog with? You know, that kind of thing. Like, oh, I always wanted to do agility. Okay. Well, can you build an A-frame and maybe set up some weed poles in the backyard? Like, you know, there's all these different things that you can do, um, you know, to help. So yeah, I think it's really good to have some of those on-hand alternatives, you know, just like behavior modification, where we're looking at taking one behavior and providing an alternative behavior that's safer and, you know, less stress. Same with activities. Oh, I always wanted the dog that I could just take everywhere with me. I get that all the time. It's like, yeah, it's not really the dog you have. So <laughs> right. let's right. start with what, what can you we can do. do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are there certain parts of you know, maybe your dog can't go all the places you want them to go, but maybe they can go 10% of the places, right? The, yeah. the, the hikes or the public parks that have lots of space and yeah, build up from there. Exactly. Um, so before I let you go, because I'm, I know we're, we're running on running out of time. I don't want to keep you all day, but I do want to know about the um, upcoming canine sympo- symposium that you have and what's involved with that. And um, you know, if people can still jump in and kind of uh, get on board with that, whether in person or virtually. Are you doing it both? Are they doing virtual and in person? We are. Yeah, this is our first time doing it. So it's our ninth annual Canine Science Symposium. It's May 20th and 21st in San Francisco. Um, it's two days of all all canine science. Uh, we have some great speakers, um, Lisa Gunter, uh, Lindsay Merkham, Monique Udell, um, Sarah Marshall-Pashini, um, who runs uh, works at the Wolf Science Center in Vienna. Um, Angela Perry, who does a lot of um, dog genetics. Um, I know I'm forgetting some folks, but uh, we have a a really great lineup. Um, And yes, so I I mentioned it's in San Francisco, but this time we're offering a Zoom option, um, at least for part of the day. So we have uh, main sessions in the morning, breakout sessions, where there'll be two sessions running at a time. Those unfortunately won't be Zoomed at the moment. Um, We might reassess, but at the moment they're not. Uh, but all those morning sessions um, can be uh, accessed through Zoom. And our website is Canine Science Symposium, and you can find out there about the pricing. Um, you can come for one day or two days. Same thing with Zoom. You can Zoom on one day, Zoom on both days. Um, so hopefully it makes it more accessible. And it it should be really fun. I, you know, I, I love going to it. I learned so much from uh, the other folks presenting. What um, continuing education credits are available? Um, we are finishing getting them, but we should have CPDT and IABC um, CEUs. Um, and I think we can also look into PPG. So we should have CEUs for any of those organizations. Perfect. Perfect. Everybody's always wanting to know, make sure it goes towards, yes. my, <laughs> towards my credentials. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. That's perfect. I'm going to be in attendance for sure. I'm excited. This will be my first go round with the Canine Symposium. So I'm really excited to see um, d- definitely some of the speakers that you listed. That's going to be fun. Uh, so if people want to get in touch with you or ask questions about the program, um, you know, they might be interested in getting a master's as well or getting their cab. Um, mm-hmm. What's the best way to get in touch or reach out with questions? Yeah. So usually my email is best. Um, it's my initials E and as a Nancy F as in Frank 007 at vt.edu. You can also look me up on our um, uh, Virginia Tech website. So 
Uh, I'm the only Fearbacher on there. <laughs> so if you just type <laughs> in my name, it'll it'll come up. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. Um, the it's like you know facebook.com backslash aab for applied animal behavior vt aabvt. You can keep up with um, what our lab's doing and like you said, the studies that we have going on that we're oftentimes recruiting folks uh, to participate in. Um, and certainly using Facebook Messenger to get in touch with me about masters or anything else is another good way. That's perfect. I will put um, your email and the links that you mentioned in the show notes too, so people can directly access that Excellent. and access you, you. And hopefully we'll encourage more people to um, look into the program. Sounds so, great. I appreciate awesome. it. Thanks so much for your time. This was great. I really enjoyed meeting you virtually and learning more about the, uh, the program and the research and what you guys are up to. Thanks. Well, thanks for hosting me. It was really fun chatting with you too. 